Well, missed you guys so much last week and very thankful for Jason to fill in and um, preach the word. And um, But it made my whole week feel funny by missing Sunday, uh, which is a good sign, I think. But um, excited to get back into and continue our study in John. And um, I have a friend, a very good friend, who I used to be in a band with, and we we did Christian music, and we throw in some country and old rock from time to time as well. And um, very talented kid, very talented musician and singer. And so a few years ago, he decided that if he wanted to pursue his dream, he needed to move. And so where do you where do you imagine he moved to? Nashville, Tennessee, right? Been there ever since. He's you know having a little bit of semi-success, I think, pretty, some success up there. And so, regardless, he's living his dream, and, and I respect that. And and, but why did he leave small town Mississippi for Nashville? That's where the action is, right? I mean, he can only do so many festivals around Mississippi. We have plenty of them, don't we? Watermelon Festival, Sweet Potato Festival, you name Every town's got one, right? And so he moved to Nashville to pursue that dream, and that's what people do. And, and in the same way, people move to California, right, to be movie stars. People move to Hollywood to be, to be actors. And, and so I, I give that illustration to you here at the beginning because... As we study the Gospels, um, was Jesus always running toward where the action was? I kind of think wherever he was, that was the action. But, but you're going to see in the text today, and I want you to just be thinking about it. Notice his response to kind of going to the, uh, the, the place of action, if you will. And so if, if you're finding John, find chapter 7 and I wanted to mention this before we read the text, that surprisingly, maybe to some, we are probably here at a place where there's maybe just six months or so left before Christ goes to the cross. Six, seven, eight months, something in, uh, that's the timeline I've read and found. And so there's 21 chapters in the book of John, and so from 7 to 21, it's, it's winding down to the end of Christ's life. And so I tell you that just to see I hope we'll just see urgency in uh, the actions of Christ, the words of Christ, and just knowing that his life, you know, is, is, is coming to an end as far as him fulfilling his mission. And so think about that as we read John 7, verses 1 through 13. If you found verse 1, say word. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee... For he would not walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence, and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up unto this feast, I go not up, yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. 
But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? There was much murmuring among the people concerning him, for some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he deceives the people. Howbeit no man spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Let's pray. Father, it is our desire this morning that the things we hear would be from your word. And I pray that your son Jesus Christ would be exalted in our hearts and in the preaching of this word. And that you would do a work through your spirit in us that only you can do. I pray that you would convict us if we need conviction. You would challenge us if we need challenge. And Father, if there's one here that does not know you, that you would show them the truth of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to give you a quick lesson, a geography lesson for some maybe as we get into these first couple of verses. It says there that Jesus is in Galilee, which is the northern region of Israel. So he's up there in Galilee, hanging out up there, doing things up there. And the southern region is Judea. And Judea is where the city of Jerusalem is. Judea is where the action uh, is, if you want to say it that way. And so if you look at verse 1, it says Jesus is walking in Galilee. He would not walk in Judea because why? It says there that because the Jews were seeking to do what to him? To kill him. So I ask you this question this morning. Um, was Jesus afraid of those Jewish people? That might be a good Wednesday night discussion. Jesus did not go down at that time or, or did not go there at that time because he knew it was not yet his time, right? He knew it was not yet his time. I, I don't think there was fear. I think there was a perfect understanding of the timing of God in his life. Look at verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. I know we talked about this uh, at some point earlier this year, um, but there were three major feasts in the Jewish life, and one was this Feast of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Booths. And how many of y'all like to go camping? Some people like to camp. Y'all might enjoy the Feast of Booths because they would come to Jerusalem once a year, and they would camp out in makeshift tents. Actually, that doesn't sound so great, does it? <laughs> it's not nice campers like y'all have. But they just go and camp out for a week, and it was a commemoration, a once-a-year annual commemoration of what God had done for his people in the wilderness, when God had cared for them by giving them food and bringing water from a rock and just providing for them. And so every year they would come and they would just uh, celebrate this and think about what God had done for their ancestors many years before. Um, and even as I read verse 2, I thought about the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booze, and I wanted to give you this application. You ready? Uh, a simple application as we get here at the beginning, and that's one way, to, one way to make it through our current life struggles is to constantly remember how God has helped us in the past. I think that's a biblical concept, right? That's why God puts these different feasts and festivals and things in his word for these people to follow, because these people in John 7 were not alive, obviously, back in the Old Testament time, but yet they would do this feast, they would do this celebration as a remembrance. 
what do we do as a remembrance on a pretty regular basis? The Lord's Supper, that's a time of remembrance we do. And so, again, the application I'm giving you here is whatever struggles you might be going through, one way to help you get through that is to know God has always helped you in the past. And can we testify that that's true this morning? How many of us can say, well, um, God has delivered me from this in the past or that in the past? I didn't know how I was going to make a relationship work, and God somehow worked it out. I didn't know how I was going to make a job situation work, and God worked it out, or a financial situation, or a spiritual situation, and God worked it out. Um, time and time again, the God who has helped us in the past is still here helping us now. And so we need to remember that, specifically if you're going through something difficult this morning. So it's the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus is in the north, not going to the south yet. He knows that they want to uh, arrest him there and, and, and even kill him. And, but he's a Jewish person, and so he needs to go to this tabernacle, so, or to this Feast of Tabernacles. So look at verses 3 and 4 with me. It says, His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart and go into Judea, uh, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou art you're doing. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. As you look at those verses, um, look at verse 3. Who are the brethren of Jesus in verse 3? Who do you think that could be? Do you think that's his, uh, think that is Christians, his brothers in Christ, his fellow church folks? I think it's not. I think that's actually his brothers. Did you know Jesus had brothers and sisters? The scripture gives evidence of that. We know that Jesus was Mary's first, right? Um, but there's evidence. Actually, James, who wrote the book of James and was prominent in the book of Acts in the New Testament church, um, is a brother of Jesus, uh, according to most. And so um, these are the actual brothers of Jesus. And in verse 3, they're saying to him, you need to go down there where the action is. You need to move to Nashville. <laughs> but you need to go to where the action is and be seen and become famous by doing what you're doing. You need to go there. And, 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 and I think those brothers are, are like the crowds in chapter 6 who are just kind of following Jesus to see what he would do, or these brothers, or even like um, those Jewish folks who thought he was coming to be the earthly king. Like, you need to go down there and, and set them straight and free us from Roman oppression. You can't do that up here in Galilee, in, in, the, in the country. You need to go to the city and start making things happen and doing miracles that people can see that you truly are who you say you are. They were, it seems to me here, trying to peer pressure him to go do some things. But then verse 5 gives us the very sad truth of this text. It says, not even his brothers believed in him. And that leads me to our first point. I have four points. Our first one this morning is, spiritual privileges are not enough to make someone a Christian. Spiritual privileges are not enough to make someone a Christian. I ask you, which is worse these Jewish religious people that wanted to kill Jesus or his very own brothers who did not believe in him? I don't know which one's worse. His brothers, I imagine, had at this time seen him do miracles, heard him teach, and lived with him, or at least at some point of his life around him. And yet, 
to not believe according to verse 5. To me, that's tragic. To me, that's sad. But J.C. Rowell said about this, The mere possession of spiritual privileges has never yet made anyone a Christian. Rowell said, All is useless without the effectual and applying work of God the Holy Spirit. No wonder our Lord said in another place, No man can come to me except the Father who sent me draws him. It seems unfathomable, but it is true that there are people who grow up in Christian homes with Christian parents with many Bibles in their house who attend church week after week, who go to all the classes and go to all the meetings, who, who jo- get baptized, join the church, make a profession, take part in the Lord's Supper, serve in the church, give money in the offering plate, do all these different things, who are good people, who act right. It's unfathomable, but it's true that there are people who do all those things and who yet may be without Christ. Isn't that crazy? But Matthew chapter 7 tells us very clearly that one day people will go to Jesus and say, Lord, I did this in your name. I did this in your name. And he will say, depart from me. Being around Christian things has never yet made someone a Christian. Now those things can help, right? If you had good godly parents, certainly they guided you toward Christ, which is amazing. Or a godly church can guide you that direction. But the point is, all that vicinity to Christ does not make us a Christian, does it? I've used this illustration before. It's kind of silly, right? But if I go stand in my garage, does that make me a car? Obviously not, right? Just because you sit in a church building does not make you a Christian, right? It only comes through Christ. And the brothers of Jesus in this passage are an example that those spiritual privileges are a blessing. They're not enough alone to make us a Christian. Let me give you the second point this morning, and that is that Jesus' time had not yet come. I see, I see this in his own words in verses 6 and 8. Let's look at those again. Verse 6, Jesus says to them, my time is, is not yet come. So they're like, go down there. You need to go down to Jerusalem. Go down to Judea. And he's like, no, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. Verse 8, he says to them, you go to the feast. I go up not yet to the feast, for my time is not yet fully come. Again, I say again, I don't, I don't think Jesus was avoiding the feast for uh, fear. I think he, he knew there were people there looking to arrest him, and Jesus had other things to do before that time. But twice here he says, you guys go ahead. It's not my time. It's not yet my time. Let me ask you this, church. Was Jesus Christ completely surrendered to the Father's will? Completely, right? Isn't that amazing to think about? We want to be surrendered to God's will, I hope, and we should as Christians. We should desire to, you know, follow Him and try to accomplish His will. But what would it be like if we were just 50% committed to following His will? Or 80%? The Son of God, Jesus Christ, was 100%. And I can't think about this without thinking about the Garden of Gethsemane knowing his life is coming to a close, and he says, and all the wrath he was going to take for our sin, and he said, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. He followed the Father's will. So he knew, he knew a part of following the will of the Father is timing, right? Um, and many of us have experienced this as well, right? Like, you know, I'm going to do what God wants me to do, but maybe just not right now, right? We, we, and we understand that Jesus knew timing 
is a part of God's, the Father's will. We want things in our own time, don't we? Instead of looking to his time. And Jesus, um, Jesus did not let other people influence his obedience to the will of the Father. Say it again. Jesus did not let other people, even his own brothers, impact or influence his commitment to the will of the Father. And I hope we will do the same. Third point, in verse 7, look at verse 7. It says, the world cannot hate you, he says to his brothers here, but me it hates because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. The third point this morning is that unbelievers hate Jesus because he confronts sin. Ultimately, were these people ever mad at Jesus for doing miracles? When he fed 5,000 hungry people plus, were they like, man, you shouldn't have fed us all that food? No, they were happy. They were satisfied. Now, we know there are times he did miracles, like a couple chapters ago, he did a miracle on a Sabbath day, and these religious folks were mad about it, angry about it. But were they really mad about the miracle he performed or about the the law, the laws they were putting under it. It's the laws, right? If Jesus would have been just a miracle worker, would he have been crucified? I say, no, probably not. I think people would have loved it. He had been an attraction. People would have went to see the miracles. What if Jesus had only been a peaceful teacher? Would he have been crucified? Probably not. What if Jesus had come to be the king that they wanted, who went to Jerusalem and said, we're going to do it, we're going we're to free you from Roman oppression? They would have rallied behind him. But Jesus didn't come just to be a miracle worker and a peaceful teacher or an earthly king, did he? He came and confronted sin. Jesus' first sermon starts like this. Repent. And what does repent mean? Turn from our sin. J.C. Ryle said, The world around Jesus could have tolerated all his opinions if he would have just spared their sin. But Jesus could not spare the sins, could he? Just like he could not spare ours. He preached. I, I looked some of these up in the, in the, in the, just in the Gospels and Jesus' teachings. And I'm only going to give you a few. I'm not going to read all the text, but I have texts here. But Jesus preached against pride. He preached against unbelief when he said in Matthew 16, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign. How about in Matthew 22 when he pronounced woes on the religious leaders, those woes of judgment calling out their hypocrisy. Jesus preached against greed and impurity, disobedience, and on and on Jesus Christ came and confronted sin. And someone said, well, you know, Jesus ate with sinners. Uh, yeah, but did he ever condone their sin? Did Jesus ever condone sin? Well, that's okay. That sin's okay. Did Jesus ever say that? Of course not. He could not say that. And so in John 7, verse 7, Jesus says, this is why the world hates me. They hate me not because I do miracles. They hate me not because um, this kind of person or that kind of person. They hate me because I walk up and, say, and I confront them and I bring their sin to their forefront. 
And we all know, don't we, because we experience this, when your sin is kind of brought to your own heart or your own attention, that hurts, doesn't it? Have you ever had someone come to you, and maybe you haven't, um, since, maybe since childhood, but come to you and say, hey, uh, you're doing this sin and you need to stop it. Like, that's not fun, is it? Uh, that's happened to me a few times in my life. Usually my wife or somebody like that is like, hey, you're wrong on this. You need to change it. But that's not fun. In my early 20s, I had a brother in Christ that came up to me and he said, you know, you said this thing over here you shouldn't have said. And he was right, but I got angry. I was, Who's he to tell me? What I, you know, I'm better than this guy. What's he telling me? But he was right. He confronted me with my sin and I didn't like it. We don't like being confronted with our sin, do we? Is it possible some people avoid the Bible because they know it's going to point out their sin? It's going to be a big, a big spotlight right on our sin. Or a mirror, the Bible is like a mirror, that we look into it, we see the truth. And Jesus said, the world hates me because I testify that their works are evil. And just as it was in John 7, it is today. How many people do we know who refuse to come to Christ or they reject Christ because they know coming to Christ demands a life change? How many people would say, I like Christianity. It's a nice religion. There's good people in it. There's some perks to it I think are cool, like eternal life, this, that, and the other. But they never really come, do they? Because they're not willing to surrender their life to Christ. Make that change that he makes in us. Which is why we pray that Christ does the work and we know he does in people's lives. None of us would surrender. None of us would change if he didn't do the change in us. All right. Look, we could come every Sunday and preach happy-go-lucky sermons about how to live your best life now. And some churches do that. And you would leave here feeling good every Sunday. But my goal, I hate to say it this way, my goal is not that we feel good every Sunday we leave here. I feel good most Sundays I leave here. My goal, our goal, is that when we all leave here, we know Christ a little bit better. And a little more seriously. Sometimes that might make us feel good. Sometimes that might make us feel convicted over something. That's our goal. Our goal. I love what Paul said. I think it's in Galatians where he said, I'm in the pains of childbirth because I want you to be formed into the image of Christ. Now, I haven't experienced childbirth, but I was, I've, been, I've been close to it, and it looks painful. Paul said, that's how desperate I want to see Christ formed in you. Another place he said, is it Colossians? He said, we're here that everyone may become mature believers in Christ. That's the goal. And so for, for us to reach that level of maturity in Christ, to grow in Christ's likeness and be the Christians we need to be, there will be times where our sin must be confronted, if at nothing else, at least through the preaching of the Word. And as we go through the text of the, of the Scripture, if we come to certain sins and we call those things out, then we all need to take a stock of our lives and how that, how that affects us. I hope we'll continue to preach and, and, and know that our goal here is to know the biblical Christ and nothing else. But as we go through these things, just like Jesus did in his life, as we go through the scripture, we're going to preach on certain sins and people may be offended by those things, right? Maybe even you, maybe even some of us. We might read a sin like, ugh, that kind of offends me. Well, if we, ascend, if we offend people by preaching on sin, we're in good company. Because Jesus did as well.
Look with me at verse 9 and 10. So when he said these words unto them, he was still in Galilee. But when his brethren were grown up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. So Jesus, uh, I read one commentator was like, did Jesus tell a lie here? Because he said he wasn't going and then he went. No, of course Jesus could, did not lie, could not lie. Jesus did not want to go up with them, did not want to go up with a, a show, right? So he kind of went in secretly a little bit later. And as a matter of fact, next week what we're going to see is in the middle of the feast, Jesus actually gets up and starts teaching. And so he wasn't just going to go in and hide the whole time, but he wanted to do things the right way, the way things needed to, to happen. So look at verse 11 as he, as he goes now, or what we see there in, in Judea. It says, the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? I mean, these people are wanting to see Jesus. Some maybe for the wrong reasons, of course. But it says, there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. Some said he is a good man. Others said, no, he deceives the people. Howbeit, no man spoke openly of him for fear of, of the Jews. My fourth and final point today is, and I hope you plainly see it, but Jesus demands a response. Jesus Christ demands a response. There's some things that people love or hate, right? There's like no in between. Um, have y'all anybody seen the new Top Gun movie? Most of my friends are like, I love it. It's the greatest thing ever. I've had a few friends be like, I didn't think it was very good. It stunk. I was like, what? Everybody loves it. But things people love and hate, right? Alabama football. Some of y'all love them. Some of y'all are like, ugh, you know. There's things we love and hate, right? Politicians, you love them or you hate them, usually. But look what happened to our Lord Jesus Christ is there here in verse 12. There's mixed reviews about him. Some like, he's, he's a good man. And some say, no, he's deceiving people. But I want to go a little, a little deeper than that and, and think about who, who were the people there? I have to imagine there were some there who were followers of Jesus. We know his disciples. And based on chapter 6, I'm not sure there were many more people besides the disciples. Maybe a, maybe a small group, but it seems like everyone is rejecting him at this point except for just the, the disciples. And so there is a small group probably of their folks there who actually are his followers they're probably being quiet, by the way, because verse 13 told us they're too scared to speak out. Uh, no man spoke about him. And so there's that group of followers. Then the second group, I'm sure, that were there are those, those Pharisees, those reli uh, religious strict opponents of Christ. Those are those who truly did hate him. They wanted to arrest him, and, and, and they would eventually succeed. They hated him. These people hated Jesus. But I think there's a third group of folks there as well, and I just call them the casual watchers. I mean, they're there, maybe for the show, to see what he would do. They might not say they hated him or they loved him, but they wanted to see him. And yet, they were not true believers. But I want to bring this up, and our, our final point is that Jesus demands a response. And I want to say to us across this room, and maybe I'm preaching to the choir, but maybe not, we cannot be casual watchers of Jesus. Or there was a book years ago, I didn't read it, but I saw the title, I thought it was interesting. 
It's called, it was called not a fan. It's not enough to be a fan of Jesus. Like, yeah, Jesus, yeah, no. The, the, the response Jesus demands is wholehearted repentance and belief in him. There's a, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this trilemma years ago, and it may not be a perfect way to describe this, but I want to read it to you. And Lewis was trying to just talk about, talk against atheists. And listen to what Lewis said in this trilemma, and I think it helps when I think about Jesus demanding a response. C.S. Lewis said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or he is a madman. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that Jesus Christ was and is God. And it's summed up like this. Who do you say Jesus is? You have to pick one. Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he Lord? And I hope this morning we would testify together Jesus Christ is Lord. And as Lord, He calls us to forsake our sin, to repent of it, and as best we can, leave it behind. As Lord, He calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow Him. As Lord, He calls us to seek first His kingdom. As Lord, He calls us to trust in Him in all things. Is Jesus Christ your Lord? He demands a response. You cannot be a casual watcher. You can't be on the sidelines of Christianity. You're either in or you're out. You're a child of God or you're not. And it's not enough to depend on spiritual privileges. Let me close with this. There's plenty of scriptural evidence, or there's scriptural evidence that these brothers of Jesus who are pressuring him, go down there. Go down there where the show is. Do your thing so everyone can see, so you'll be famous. And verse 5 says they did not believe. There is evidence that after the resurrection, these, the siblings of Christ, came to know him as Savior and Lord, which I think is pretty awesome. And so there are people, maybe even listening to us today, who don't believe. But we know that God can do a saving work in them, just like he has done in us. So my final thing is, Jesus demands a response. 
What is your response to the living Christ? Let's pray.